if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that we've been preaching through the book of Acts. And I just want to say a couple of things. Liturgies and sermon calendars make really great houses. They make terrible prisons. And what I mean by that is our liturgy for a Sunday and our plan in our preaching calendar, those are things that we write in pencil, not in ink. And we write them in pencil because we really want to listen to the Holy Spirit and we want to be led by the Holy Spirit. And it's great to plan because the Holy Spirit speaks to us when we plan, right? When we prayerfully consider what God wants us to do in a year. But we also want to recognize that our best efforts at planning are never going to adequately meet the needs of the moment. And so for the last couple of weeks, there's been a pretty enormous amount of spiritual warfare in our church. If you wonder what that means, we're going to talk about it today. What is spiritual warfare? And uh, the Lord's been really gracious to give us some dreams and some pretty awesome supernatural moments where he said, hey, here's some things that you're wrestling with so that we can pray for the church. And in light of that, this last Tuesday in our all-team meeting, that's a gathering that we have weekly where all the staff members of our church get together to worship and pray and to train together. This last Tuesday, I talked on a Christian's response to overwhelming evil, and the elders, the pastors of our church asked me to share that with you guys today. So in the long history of awkward conversations at Frontline Church, we're going to have an awkward conversation today. And it's going to be awkward because we're going to be addressing something that's very near and dear to the heart of God, but it's something that it's really easy to mishandle and to not understand. And that is the evil, the overwhelming evil of racism. Now, I want to say a couple of things about this. I think by God's grace, and and I really attribute it to his grace, not our great planning or our wisdom, by God's grace, we've really had a beautiful couple of years of seeing gospel-formed racial reconciliation as a church. And there's a lot of things that we can worship and celebrate. Um, We've had people repent of the sin of racism, and we've had people come together across cultural barriers and love each other as brothers and sisters. And there's been a lot of really appropriate responses to the gospel and race that you guys, as followers of Jesus, have walked out. Um, I'll just name a few things that we can celebrate that have happened over the last couple of years. We've had men and women get together to just practice biblical lamentation, right? Uh, and you may not know what that word is, but it's just such a great word. It's, it's actually mourning and weeping over the things that are grievous to God's heart. Uh, it's actually a spiritual discipline to know how to call something that's terrible, terrible, and feel the weight of it and weep together and confess that God weeps about things that are not right in our world. We've had moments of that. Um, we've had some beautiful dialogue and conversation around the topic of race. I'm grateful to God for raising up a group of young women in our church, young professional ladies that have got together a group of people in the community to talk about racial barriers and prejudice. And I'm grateful that dialogue and talking is a good response. And we've had that response. Um, We've had teaching and education. And that's important. We've preached through a lot of books of the Bible over the last couple of years. And one of the books of the Bible is the book of Galatians. And you can't preach through the book of Galatians and not address the reality of racism and how racism can only be put to death by the person and work of Jesus. So we want to teach and we want to train. Um, We've also had relationships and meals. 
right? Relationships and meals are really holy things that we can do that honor God. And I got a text from a friend this last week and he had had this dinner party that he put together and he sent me the picture of the text. And it was just beautiful. It looked like, it looked like the church in the book of Revelation, right? It was people from all kinds of different backgrounds and different races and different life experiences that were worshiping Jesus and talking together. And then we, we've had healthy political engagement, Uh, I'm so grateful to God that we have some political leaders that are members of our church that love Jesus and they fear God and they're doing everything that they can in a really polarized moment to work for the good of our state and work for the good of our city. And I just want to say all of those things are really good and all those things are important, but there are moments when evil is so overwhelming, it tempts us to lose hope. And I don't know about you, but this has, been, this has been a summer that for me has been very borderline despairing as it relates to race relations. Um, this has been a summer where a lot of civil rights leaders that were involved in the 60s have said that it feels more tense now, 2016, culturally. It feels more tense than it even felt in 68. So we're in this cultural moment where politically the polarization is so intense and it's so venomous. We're in this moment where if you check the news, and it's kind of hard not to, if you check the news or social media, there are new evidences of both individual personal racism and then systemic racism popping up all the time. And versus giving you all the examples of that, you could just read what was written by the investigation into the Baltimore policing practices. That's an example of systemic racism where our culture is not as far along as we thought we were. And then in the midst of all the like right anger, anger also gets twisted and there's been unbelievable violence this summer. There's been the targeting of cops. There's been riots. And, and I've just had moments where it feels like by God's grace, we've had some traction as a church and we've seen some reconciliation and we've seen some growth in our understanding of what the gospel does to break down barriers. And then there's just been moments where I felt like throwing up my hands and saying, this mountain is so steep, we'll never get to the top. So why even try? So what I wanna do is I wanna honor and affirm all of those things that have been a part of our response to the gospel of Jesus and race. But I wanna be clear today that in the midst of overwhelming evil, there is a foundational response that gets forgotten by a lot of Christians. When there's overwhelming evil, be it the evil of racism or the evil of abortion or the evil of what's happening with poverty in the world that we live, there's a response that's foundational that a lot of times we just leave out because we don't even have that response in our worldview as followers of Jesus. So today I want to take a second, and I don't want to discount conversation. I don't want to discount education. I don't want to discount political engagement. I don't want to discount meals across cultural boundaries. But I want to highlight that if these two foundational realities are not a part of our response to evil, then we're not going to get traction in particular as it relates to the areas of race relations, gender relations, and things that are just too complicated and too difficult with too much history for us to ever feel like we're actually healed. So with that in mind, I want to share these with you. Take, take your Bible, go first to Ephesians chapter 6. 
the first foundational reality when it comes to overwhelming evil, and in particular in this conversation, the overwhelming evil of racism, the, the first foundational reality is that we're often fighting something that we will never be able to beat in human strength. We're often up against something that's a lot more complicated than just individual choices or systemic structures. We're often facing something that actually is supernatural, powerful, and deeply evil. This is God's holy word, and it says this, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Uh, Let's just stop for a second and celebrate what's counterintuitive to being a Christian, that in your weakness, the strength of God gets manifested. And that's good news. You don't know what to do when overwhelming evil comes? Jesus does. You don't know what to do when you're overwhelmed with temptation? Jesus does. You feel overwhelmed with what it means to walk out your job in a way that honors God in your weakness? He's strong. But then he tells us this in verse 11. Put on the full armor or the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So here's what he's saying. As a follower of Jesus, there is, there is a warlike attire that we're called to put on. And, and I just would note for just a second that for a lot of us in the room, uh, we act like tourists in a war zone in our Christian life. So bullets are flying around and there's explosive charges on the side of the room and there's snipers up on the roof in a spiritual sense and we're walking around with flip-flops and shorts and we're snapping pictures for Instagram completely unaware that you actually are in the middle of a war, of a fight and the stakes are high. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you might stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, for a lot of us in the room, what I just read seems like ridiculous mythology. It seems like that is superstitious, tribalistic, that is old ways of thinking, And now we know that reason is king, science is king, and if you can't measure it, taste it, if you can't evaluate it based on the scientific method, it doesn't exist. And I just would say, like, that view of the world is a lot more driven by the Enlightenment than it's driven by God's revealed truth in Scripture. Now, I'm thankful for a lot of stuff that happened in the Enlightenment. Science is good, and being a Christian is not being at odds with science. Um, it's good to be rational. God is the God of truth and he wants you to love him with your minds. Science is good and reason is good, but here's what happened in the enlightenment. We actually elevated human cognitive power above the reality of the kind of world in which we live, the kind of cosmos that God has created and put us in. And what the Bible says in this text is that there actually are things that you can't see that are as real as the things that you can see, and those things you cannot see are actually working always to manifest things that you can see. So here's what the Bible would say really clearly. It would say to be a follower of Jesus is to be engaged in conflict with three great enemies. Three great enemies. The first enemy is what the Bible calls the flesh. The flesh. And the flesh is 
the sinful brokenness of what it is to be a human. That there's parts of who we are at the core of who we are that are bent away from God, that are turned into self and not out towards other. There's parts of who we are that always take stuff that God made and try to ask those created things to do things only God can do. And the Bible would say that's your flesh. And even after you become a Christian, the rest of your life until you meet Jesus face to face, you're gonna be warring against your flesh. So let's just talk about this in light of racism. Part of the issue with racism is that we're sinful human beings and we have flesh. So let me put it to you like this. Like, I am prideful. And I know that we've bought into the educational myth that the greatest problem facing America is low self-esteem, but let's just be honest about who we are for just a minute. If you're a lot like me, I'll probably like you because I really like me. If you like the same music I like and you see the world the way I see the world and you're into the same things I'm into, I'm probably going to want to be with you because I really like being with me. And the Bible would describe that as flesh. So part of the issue with racism is that we have this hardwired, this hardwired propensity as humans to elevate self above other and preference of self above other and to constantly evaluate others based on what we hold to be dear from our own bent perspective. So can we just take a second and just admit, and this is one of my challenges in preaching and teaching to a majority white culture church, and I'm grateful to God that we have a lot of men and women that are African-American and Latino and Asian and Native American that are a part of our church, and I'm grateful for your patience with me and your patience with us, because one of my challenges is to try to say to a majority culture church There are things that you and me just don't see that our brothers of different ethnicities are seeing and experiencing all the time. And part of the wrestle with flesh is just this humble realization that seeing through your eyes and walking in your shoes needs to be held with really open hands. And it actually is a biblical calling to lay down preference and honor others and to outdo one another in showing honor as it relates to relationship. So part of the problem with racism is that we have some people that are just ignorant in their flesh, and then we have some people that are racist in their flesh, and that's part of what we're facing as a church and as a nation. But that's not the only problem. It's not just personal flesh. It's also what the Bible would call the world. So there's the flesh, and then there's the world. Now, the Bible talks about the world in a positive sense in some scriptures. It says that God so loved the world. So there's a sense in which the world he created that's populated by human beings that are image bearers is a treasure to God, that he loves the world. But the Bible also talks about the world in a different way. It talks about the schemes of the world and the love of the world, and the lust of the world. And when the Bible talks about the world in a negative sense, here's what it's saying. When people whose flesh is bent away from God and turned inward on self get together, they build cultures and structures and businesses and economies that don't reflect God's glory, that actually obscure God's glory. So the world are the collaborative systems of sin and brokenness that exist in creation. And I just say, man, like, thank God for 
the measure of healing and growth we've had as a nation. We, we can celebrate the things that have been good as it relates to race. We could celebrate that there's been traction, there's been growth, but we have to have a sober assessment. We have to have an honest assessment as followers of Jesus that looks at the world and says, hey, the systems of this world, including the systems of the world in the U.S. and in Oklahoma City and in Edmond and South OKC, are still mixed up with sinful prejudice. There's still racism. There's still ways in which our policies and procedures are built out of oppression. There's still ways in which we actually haven't mourned the sins of the past to bring healing, life, and reconciliation. So there's the flesh. That's my propensity to be prejudiced because I love myself more than I love others. Then there's the world, that's our collaborative economies and our collaborative governmental structures that are always mixed with the imago Dei, God's image, and brokenness, evil, oppression. And then there's the third one that good enlightenment Christians ignore, and that's what the Bible calls the devil. And and for many of us, we think the devil is just a metaphor for evil. The devil is just a symbol. Um, Your picture of the devil might be like, a guy in a jumpsuit that looks like he bought it on sale at Christie's Toy Box on Valentine's Day. He's, what, he's got a red cape. He's got a pitchfork. He's, he's just this metaphor. He's this symbol. But the Bible would actually say that there is a created being known as Satan. And that created being known as Satan actually has a lot of demons that are a part of his dark rule. And he exists. He lives. He thrives upon the devouring of people. He lives to steal and to kill and to destroy. He hates you. He hates gospel reconciliation. He hates it when peace and justice and love actually get established because those things point to the gospel. He hates it when men and women repent of sin. He hates it when marriages reflect the beautiful, the beautiful essence of maleness and female, femaleness in a way that reveals God's glory. He hates it. And he's working overtime. And I would just say that part of what we're up against in the overwhelming evil of racism is not just the flesh. It's not just the world. It's also dark cosmic powers and principalities that want to keep us divided and keep hate and violence and oppression alive and well to obscure the advance of the gospel. Take your Bible. Let me show you another example of this. Go to Mark chapter 9. This is a wild story about the life of Jesus. This is something that happened to him when he was on planet earth preaching and teaching in his fleshly ministry. It says, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. When they brought the boy to him, when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. 
But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So here's what's happening. There's this, there's this boy that from childhood has been oppressed by this evil spirit. And Jesus comes into the scene and this evil spirit throws this boy into a convulsion. He's been trying to kill him his entire life. And the disciples can't cast this demon out And Jesus shows up and all of a sudden it seems like things are actually going to get worse when Jesus speaks to the spirit. He convulses harder. He seems to be dead. But the end result is that Jesus has the authority to push back the demonic darkness in this boy's life. Now listen, there are things that are medical problems. There are things that are mental problems. But there are also things that are spiritual problems. And in this particular text, what Jesus is pointing out is that if you try to bring human intellect and human strength and human authority in a war against that which is older than you, that's entrenched and rooted deeper than you, what you're going to get is complete and total failure. Now, I don't want to take this one story and build a theology of racism around this one story. I just want to be, I just want to be biblically faithful. And I want to say, like, if that kind only came out by prayer and fasting, what about the kind of racism that's lasted in our nation for over 300 years now? Surely that falls into the category of this kind. Like, surely we're up against more with racism than just something that's a social pathology or just something that's individual ignorance. Surely, man, surely 300 years into our troubled racial story as America, surely by now, if this was something that we could cast out just by education and human effort, surely we would get more wins than what we're getting. I would say, I would, I would submit to you, I believe that one of the realities, in addition to training and education and meals and dialogue and political engagement, is that we open our eyes to the reality that there are things that are really old and really evil that delight in the racial fracturing of our nation. And they really delight in it when it's in our church. They love it when it keeps brothers and sisters from loving each other. They love perpetuating the diagnostic of Martin Luther King Jr. that the most segregated hour in America is an 11 o'clock hour on Sunday. They love that. So Jesus says to his disciples, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And some manuscripts will say by prayer and fasting. Now let's talk about this. Prayer is not a magic incantation, but the reason prayer is so powerful in addressing demonic powers and forces is threefold. Let me give them to you. 
First of all, prayer is powerful because it's worship. It's worship. When we pray in the midst of overwhelming evil, this happened to the early church in their persecution under Rome. Rome, the most powerful empire in the land, is killing and oppressing Christians, and these Christians would respond in prayer, and in prayer, here's what they would do. They would lift their eyes off of Caesar, and they would look at Jesus, and they would remember that Jesus is more powerful and more glorious than any dark, demonic thing or any human structure. Prayer is beautiful because it reminds us of who God is. Prayer in a chaotic world is lifting up your eyes and saying, okay, um, racism is so big, it feels like we're never gonna heal the wound. Poverty is so giant, it feels like we're never gonna make a dent in it. The way that our world is so fractured, it feels like we're never gonna see health and wholeness even in the church. And in the midst of all the chaos, here's what we do as Christians. We stop and we look up at the right hand of the Father and we see Jesus by reading scripture and we remember he's the beginning and the end. Not racism. He's the first and the last. He's the one that holds in his hands the keys of death and hell. He's the one who speaks words and worlds are born. He's the one that says, be quiet even in his earthly ministry and storms go away and oceans go flat. Prayer reminds us of who God is. Prayer is also a part of our response to evil because in prayer we worship, but we also confess and repent. Prayer is where we acknowledge to God in humility our dependence on his grace. Prayer is where we say, hey, yeah, we are a faithless generation. I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. Prayers where we say, hey, I got blind spots I don't even know I have. That's the nature of blind spots. Lord, would you forgive me? Prayers where we say, hey, I actually want things that are my will that have nothing to do with your will. Would you deliver me? Prayer is where we confess and humble ourselves so that Jesus can be glorified and so we can change. And then lastly, prayer is where we ask God to move. So we worship and we confess, but we ask God to move. And what's breathtaking is that the kingdom of God actually breaks into this planet as the church of God prays. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want to be a critic. I don't want to be harsh, but I want to speak pastorally to you. When you are confronted with overwhelming evil and someone says, we need to pray, and your response is, no, I want to do something. What you're saying in that moment is that you've been more shaped and formed by the enlightenment than you have by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the reality is, all of those things are important. Political engagement and relationship and meals and dialogue and teaching and training. But here's what we do when we pray. We actually acknowledge that God is sovereign over history. He's sovereign over the end, but also the means. And the means that God uses to engage in the world and to push back darkness is the prayers of his church. So yeah, let's, in addition to prayer, do something. Let's not just pray, but let's pray realizing that the most powerful thing that we could possibly do when the evil is so huge that we don't know what to do with it, the most powerful thing we could do as Christians is to pray the will of God. When we pray, 
God hears and he moves and he responds and things happen that could never happen without prayer. One of our hopes is that this first foundational reality would lead towards humility and prayerfulness. Like when evil hits your personal life or evil hits culture and evil seems completely insurmountable, what should we do? Well, we should realize that you're not strong enough to address it just with human means. And there are forces and powers at work, so what should we do? Well, we gotta pray. We wanna be a praying church. In community groups this week, we're gonna be praying that God would uproot principalities and powers over our nation and our city and our state, that he would deliver us from racism, that he would deliver the church from racism, that he would bring us back to one another, that he would change our hearts. We're going to do some fasting as a church, right? And and we're not going to try to go from like zero to 40 on the fasting dial. Uh, I I remember one year we did a prayer during a fasting season during Lent. And I was like, I'm going to fast and only do juice for 40 days. And a weekend, my wife was like, hey, how about you just fast being a total jerk? So like, we're not going to try to dial it up to 40, but... We're going to pray and we're going to fast and we're going to, we're going to ask God to do things that we can't do as it relates to race and relationships and marriages and family and the things in culture that are not things that we can address in human strength. Are you guys tracking with me? Second thing that's foundational. So we got to see that there's invisible things that are never going to change without God breaking in and moving that leads us to prayer. The second thing is we are going to aim at the gospel as our primary focus and our primary goal. Let me tell you a tragic story. In the 60s, really more 70s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, there were a lot of evangelical Christians that took the aim off of the gospel being primary, and they put the aim on family values and a Christian America being primary. Now, you you can debate the result of that with me all you want, but you better bring data to the table because I got data. And what started to happen is as evangelical Christians became more passionate about family values than the grace of God in Christ, and as we became more passionate about a Christian America driven by being a powerful voting block than evangelism and proclamation of the good news of Jesus, here's what happened. Not only did they lose the gospel, but they also lost family values and America's less Christian than what it was. Now, here's why I'm saying this. The gospel is our focus. It's what Paul said, I gave to you or reminded you that was of first importance. The gospel is the great news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And here's what I want to say. Like, do we want racial reconciliation as a church? With every fiber of my being, I want it. Do we want to grow in diversity as a church? With every fiber of my being, I want it. But here's the danger. If we start aiming at racial reconciliation or diversity in a way that's trumping our greatest aim at the gospel of Jesus, not only will we not get racial reconciliation, but we'll lose the gospel that's the power of God. So, so, What does this mean practically? Let me show you what this means. And I think this will be encouraging for wherever you're at and feeling angst about this. Look at Galatians chapter three. What does it mean to aim first at the gospel so we can get the things the gospel creates? The gospel is what creates racial reconciliation. It's what creates 
healthy families. It's what creates repentance and humility. So how do we aim at the gospel? Look at Galatians 3, verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So you were under the law, but now the grace of God has moved. Jesus fulfilled the law in your place. You're no longer under the guardian of the law. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. Now look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you were all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. Okay, this is this beautiful gospel nugget that God the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write that reminds us of what the gospel has the power to do in relationship and culture. When the focus of what we're preaching and teaching and the focus of what forms our identity is Jesus... Groups that would never love each other begin to repent of sin and love each other as they remember the cross. So here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that the gospel abolishes race or culture. So when he says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, he's not saying that that the cultural heritage of a Greek is now completely gone and it's wiped out to neutral and the cultural heritage of a Jew is completely gone and wiped out to neutral. In fact, at the end of the Bible, we have this beautiful party in heaven, and John gets a vision of it, and here's what he sees. A lot of different ethnicities loving and worshiping Jesus with different accents, okay? So he's not abolishing race. In fact, um, my dad's side of our family is Lebanese, and when we used to do big family celebrations, and we still occasionally do them, we, we celebrate a lot of stuff that I really love about Lebanese culture. We have great Lebanese food, and we have a lot of cool ways that we express being loud and expressive and having fun together. And, and here, here's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden I'm race neutral and culture neutral. It means that something happens that actually trumps my race and your race, my culture and your culture, that actually becomes the primary definition of who we are. We don't want to be culture blind We don't want to be race blind. We don't want to be color blind. That diminishes the glory of God. I love the fact that we have folks from Asian culture in our church. Our church is richer for that. And the kingdom of God will be richer for that in 10 billion years when we're in heaven. Right? We we don't want to be color blind. We want the gospel to do something different and even richer than that. Um, He's not saying that on this side of heaven, economic realities are abolished. When he talks about slave or free, it's important that you note the kind of slavery he was talking about is not the particular version of extra insidious slavery that America practiced that was racially driven. The kind of slavery that they had that he's addressing was economic slavery. And here's what he's saying when he says there's neither slave nor free. He's not saying that because of the gospel, everybody has the same amount of money now, okay? In fact, he writes to a lot of Christians that are poor, and he says, hey, you may be poor, but in Christ you're rich. And he writes to rich Christians, and he warns them, and he says, hey, don't trust in your riches, trust in Christ. In addition to that, he's not saying that the gospel abolishes gender. Right? You don't baptize somebody, and then just miraculously they come out of the water being anatomically like a Ken or Barbie doll. That's not what happens. In, in fact, 
The Bible's really clear that to be a follower of Jesus that's a woman, there's something about your feminine essence that's going to glorify God forever. To be a follower of Jesus as a man, there's something about your masculine essence that's going to glorify God forever. So what is he driving at? Well, let me put it to you like this. Here's what he's saying. The gospel of Jesus, God's grace for you in Christ, that by faith in Jesus, you've been adopted and your sins paid for. Here's what happens. First, the gospel is what creates your identity. You're not first a Caucasian dude. You're not first an African-American. You're not first the guy that has this particular job at Devon or Chesapeake. You're not first a mom. You're not first a dad. All those things that might be really beautiful parts of who you are no longer have the power to define you. What defines you now is the grace of God in Christ that says you are a son and daughter of the living God. The gospel has the power to set you free from all of the angst that we have trying to find identity in our cultures or identity in money or identity in religion or identity in relationship. The gospel has the power to set you free from striving so that you can simply be yourself as a son and daughter of God. Secondly, the gospel has the power to unify all Christians. He says, you're one in Christ. Because the gospel's our identity and we approach each other through the grace of God, it means that we can lay down preferences and we can love each other. This is an area we need to grow as a church. And I would just say, like, I'm so thankful for people that have the courage to kind of be brave forerunners as we experience more and more race reconciliation as a church. I'm grateful for men and women in our church from different ethnicities that have the guts to come into a majority white culture and have patience with us while we fumble along thinking that there's nothing wrong with the way that things are until we finally realize that stuff really is broken and stuff needs to change. And the only way that that can happen, different cultures loving each other, the only way that can happen is if we relate to each other in Jesus. Rich, poor, whatever our cultural backgrounds are. We're to love each other. We're to serve each other. I could be equally passionate about talking about Democrat, Republican. Like, we are not first and foremost all of these things. We're first and foremost siblings, and that requires love and repentance. And what this means in addition is that the gospel is what removes enmity. Enmity, that's just a biblical word that means strife and hatred and animosity. Only the gospel can remove the enmity between man and God because of sin. Only in trusting Jesus does God's enmity towards you get transformed into a father delighting in his child. Only through the grace of Jesus can the enmity between races be changed, the enmity between classes, the enmity between genders. Only through Jesus can we start to celebrate and love each other remembering what Jesus paid for on his cross, which was us being brought into family. This is why in Galatians chapter five, Paul says this, verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to this. This is a warning for our church right now. But if you bite and devour each other, watch out lest you're consumed by one another. This is him saying, 
you can either relate to each other as family because of the cross of Christ, or you can be cannibals and eat each other up because of your enmity. So as we close this today, I'm so excited about conversations and dialogue and teaching. I'm excited about meals. I'm excited about political engagement. I'm excited about all those things that relates to race. And I just want to highlight none of those things are ever going to bear lasting eternal fruit if we don't start by recognizing first and foremost, some kinds don't go out by anything but prayer and fasting. We need to humble ourselves and pray. And the aim of our church has got to be first and foremost the gospel or we'll lose the power of God that has the grace to create so many of the other things we want to see.